Hello, and welcome back to The Banter, a podcast brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm Matt Winesett. And I'm Max Frost. Max Stewie's at today on official AEI business, but Max and I are here with an interview with Yuval Levin. Many of you might know him. He's the author of several books, but if you don't, Max has a nice bio for you. Yuval is a scholar at AEI, where he's also the director of social, cultural, and constitutional studies. Uh, he's the editor-in-chief and the founder of National Affairs. He writes a lot on U.S. politics, kind of the history of the conservative movement, and he joins us today to talk about reform conservatism and the future of the Republican Party after Trump. Yep, in light of his new essay with Ramesh Panuru called The Next Coalition of the Right and National Review. We'll link it in here. Check it out. Side note, he's also the author of several books, one of which I love, called The Great Debate about Edmund Burke, Thomas Paine, and the Making of the Political Right and Left. I highly recommend you check it out. I read that in college, and it was I learned more from that than half my classes, honestly. So Matt didn't go to class very much, so <laughs> that's not saying much. I took hard classes. Yeah. In any event, thank you all for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the show. And without further ado, here is Yuval Levin. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yuval, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to talk to you about this essay you have, a national review with Ramesh Panuru on reform conservatism. So why don't we just start by saying... What is reform conservatism and why and how is it different than George Bush's compassionate conservatism or Trump's American first conservatism? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I've actually spent a lot of time asking myself over the years, what is reform conservatism? It's not a term that uh, any of the people who were involved with it came up with. It was a kind of descriptor, uh, the best that I could figure out that it, it had come from David Brooks uh, in a column, basically to describe a relatively younger generation of conservatives who were um, unhappy with where the Reaganite consensus had landed with a kind of uh, thin, sometimes shallow sort of libertarian economics and thought that there was a need to apply conservative principles to contemporary problems, to 21st century problems. And so those principles would be the same, but the policy agenda of the right would need to change some to be more focused on working families and more focused on some of the challenges of the 21st century. And so it was a sort of wonky movement, a small group of people really who wanted to rethink the policy agenda starting at the end of the Bush years and then all through the Obama years. Mm -hmm. So is Trump in any way a reform conservative? Or Well, no, of course not. Trump himself certainly is, and I'm sure he's never heard of it and uh, wouldn't be interested. But I think there is a way that some of the energy that Trumpism has brought to the surface is related to our concerns, particularly in a diagnostic sense, saying that the, the inherited Republican agenda was not appealing to voters or serving the public, and also a sense that you have to be concerned about working class families. Uh, I think that's part of what Trump is doing. But I don't think that Trump's own way of thinking about this is organized around the same kinds of questions. Some of what's moved forward in the Trump era has been things we uh, wanted to see, like uh, an expansion of the child tax credit, thinking about ways of supporting families. But, you know, that that's largely a function of the fact that the policy agenda of the right in the Trump era has just been a mix of whatever could be advanced at any given time. I think Ross Douthat called Trump's campaign reform conservatism's evil twin. Does that sound about right? Well, in some ways, yeah. I mean, again, in the sense that it had something of the same diagnosis, but that its prescription was not policy oriented. It was more about 
kind of cultural resentment and a sense that the institutions were failing us and uh, an anti-institutional populism. That's not what we were after. It's not what I was after anyway. I shouldn't speak for other people, but I, I, I certainly think there is a way in which the rejection of the existing Republican consensus, which Trump advanced, uh, was something that we had been hoping to see, but we wanted something else in place of it. What is the reform conservatism broadly speaking, tax policy, trade policy, immigration policy, what are you all after? In a sense, what we were after is a reawakening of the policy debates around these questions in ways that were focused on the realities of American life in the 21st century. I don't think there was a single position on immigration, for example. There was actually some differences of opinion among us on immigration. Um, Ramesh and I and Raihan Salam and others were uh, in a somewhat more uh, restrictionist place on immigration. There were others who were very much considered in the kind of reform conservative camp who weren't. Um, Marco Rubio was thought of as the reform conservative candidate, and at that time he certainly wasn't uh, in the same place on immigration. But I think the, the, the point had always been that we need to be having these arguments in light of what America has become rather than to, as we say in the piece, repeat the ends of Ronald Reagan's sentences while forgetting how and why they started, which I think was a problem that the right had fallen into. We had Andrew Sullivan on the show a couple months ago, and he talked about how he, for him personally, he saw it as the conservative movement has become too focused on these Reaganite, that's right, ideals, all about just constantly rolling back government, even though the problems of today don't necessarily see us as don't necessarily require further rolling back of government. Of government, there's certain things where some more government could actually be a good thing. Do you see it kind of like that? Well, I think there are areas where rolling back government would be a good thing, and there's some areas where not. I, I would say the the nostalgia problem is an enormous problem, and I, that's where I would start in thinking about it. Where we we still incline to think of the world through the lens of early Reaganism. Part of that is generational. A lot of people on the right just that. That's who they are. Um, you know, they're they're older. Um, our 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 leaders at this point in general in America are older than usual. Um, they're in their mid seventies uh, in many cases, and I do think that part of what you see on the right is a generational divide, where there is an older generation that wants to rerun Reaganism over and over. There is a kind of middle generation, a lot of senators in their forties. Um, who do want to think differently about the country's problems, but are committed to the same basic principles. And I think a lot of those people tend to be the most open to what we might think of as reform conservatism. And there's a younger generation that wasn't even alive for Reaganism. And that's not really its its point of reference at all. And I think that generation is trying to think through what it actually would mean to be a conservative now in America and is much more open to different ways of thinking about the role of government. How do some people like you know, Tucker Carlson fit into this, who, you know, goes off on these tangents about how, what do you say recently, the free free market is not God or something like that? Yeah, and how hedge funds are failing us and all stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not entirely sure. I would say Tucker is a populist and is inclined to think that American life can be understood as a struggle between elites and the rest of the public. That's the core kind of populist framework. Um, and so I, I think at this point, that means that he is committed to breaking concentrations of power, including financial and economic power. And he's turned very sharply against the kind of libertarian economics of the right. I, my own view is different. I, I, I think that what's important in the tension between libertarian economics and conservative social thought, which is a tension that's always defined the right in America, 
to me, it's important to see that there are economic questions and that the market system is the right way to think about economic questions. But not all questions are economic questions. And there are other priorities, social and cultural, moral priorities, political priorities, that have to look at market economics as a means, as a tool, not as the end. And so there are times when other things just matter more, and the right cannot be afraid to acknowledge that, to say that. I think we'd fallen too much into a kind of least common denominator libertarian economics idea of the right that we do need to recover from. And there's a lot for us to work with in that recovery. The American right has been engaged in an argument between traditionalists and libertarians for a long time. That did not just happen in the Trump era. And there's a lot we can learn from the neoconservatives of the 70s, from the debates that were happening around National Review in the 50s and 60s. So this, this isn't a brand new problem. So, yeah, you mentioned the neocons in the 70s. About a year or two ago, I read a bunch of Irvin Kristol's old essays. And is the reform conservative agenda now basically just similar to what Irvin Kristol and Daniel Bell and all those guys were advocating in the 1970s? Well, I think the reform conservative mindset is very much influenced by that group of people. Not exactly the agenda. Again, the agenda has to be a response to contemporary problems. But I think the way of thinking about politics that uh, th- that we tended to bring to bear, and again, I'll just speak for myself, is very influenced by that way of thinking about politics. And, you know, there is a place in what is my favorite of Irving Kristol's essays, uh, an essay from, from 1970 called When Virtue Loses All Her Loveliness, where he says that basically we need to combine the conservative outlook with a reforming disposition. And, you know, that's more or less reform conservatism uh, as I think about it. But th- the agenda isn't going to look the same. You know, Irving Kristol was very involved in advancing the ideas behind supply-side economics. We now think of that as a kind of libertarian idea, but in fact, supply-side economics was, if anything, an anti-libertarian idea in the 1970s. It was a way to push back against a uh, kind of green eye shade balanced to budget libertarianism. Um, I, I, I think the mindset that says... We need to think about how to solve contemporary problems with an understanding of the limits of what government can achieve, but also the potential of politics to help society advance, um, would lead us to a different agenda, but would be an application of the same way of thinking. You more, more concretely, what are some kind of policies that you would like to see? I know you have, uh, you, well, you have a new book out as well. You talk about social issues and yeah. that kind of stuff in America. Breakdown of the family, deaths of despair, opiate addiction, all this kind of stuff. What kinds of policies would you like to see coming out of Washington yeah. to address this? I mean, look, obviously there's a limit on what public policy can do about those kinds of problems. And this new book, A Time to Build, is really about the, the, the weakening of our institutions, some of which are political institutions where there's room for reforms that strengthen the Congress, reforms that roll back some of the administrative state that allows our constitutional system to function better. I certainly think that's something people in Washington need to be focused on and are not at all focused on at the moment. In terms of public policy, I I think it's very important that our politics be supportive of family formation and family stability and family growth. And some of that can be uh, a matter of straightforward public policy. I do think the, the tax system could be more supportive of parents. I think there are ways to think about some of our retirement programs in ways that help families function better. I also think more generally that we need to think of the market as a means for solving complicated policy problems, not as the end, but as an important means. So the way I think about healthcare, for example, 
involves not centralizing power and expecting people at the center to be able to manage large systems, but decentralizing power and allowing people throughout the system to make more choices. So that looks more like allowing the the states to regulate the individual market. It means more like allowing the federal support for federal subsidization of, of health insurance to flow to individuals and allow them to make a more complicated set of decisions. I think in general, part of what the right should offer the country is a way of solving problems by letting the people who face them make choices. And that can be true in healthcare and welfare and education and a lot of arenas. And yet the reform conservative message is found not always the most receptive audience. I know during the tax reform debate, I think Marco Rubio, who you called the reform, reformer yeah. candidate almost, really advocated this child tax credit. Maybe don't cut the corporate rate so much, just yeah. have more to the child family. And the Wall Street Journal editorial board just went bananas on him and said any reform, any hyphenated conservatism is basically selling out Reagan's principles. How how big of an issue is this? Well, it's obviously an issue. I mean, Rubio did basically win that fight. There was an expansion of the child credit uh, in the tax bill in 2017. Yeah, I mean, look, the Wall Street Journal editorial board has always been very opposed to what we've been trying to do because they've seen it as a step back from a commitment to pure market economics. And it is that. Um... And so, you know, I, I think in some ways that resistance has been excessive and exaggerated, but there probably is just an underlying difference of opinion. One of the frustrating things about the last few years is that some of the people who were most adamant about refusing to budge on the basic sort of libertarian character of the of the Republican agenda then became the first people to go for Donald Trump and uh, to move much further in a very different direction. So, you know, I, I think that resistance, which was uh, we went through a period in the in the Obama era, basically, where the populist energy on the right was understood as advancing the cause of libertarian purism on economic policy. That was the Tea Party moment. I, you know, in retrospect, I think that it was somewhat confused about the sources of its own energy and the priorities of its own voters. And a lot of Republican politicians who had uh, ridden the Tea Party wave were surprised to discover that their voters really liked what Donald Trump had to say. And so maybe it misread something of the populist energy underlying it. But these are debates, right? They're internal arguments on the right about what to do and what should matter to us. And so it's only natural that people disagree. Um, I think over time, the basic argument that what the electorate wants and what the country needs is going to look like applying conservative principles to a new situation is still right. So speaking on behalf of our generation, the millennials and younger, I suppose, there's definitely a sense that conservatives aren't putting up solutions to major problems in the country. Whether or not that's justified, you know, is a different debate. You know, healthcare, environment, education. Yeah. People our age see the Democrats as the party of action and conservatives just kind of maintain the status quo. Does reform conservatism have a way of dealing with this, at least fixing the image problem among other people? Yeah, I mean, I think that that image is in a sense half right. I don't think the Democrats are offering much either. To take a 70-year-old entitlement program from the heart of the great society and say for all at the end of it isn't actually offering anything. And I don't think we're having a lot of policy debates in our politics right now. We're having kind of cultural debates where people use policy language to signal what team they're on, and both sides do this. I certainly think that, I mean, look, to me, part of the appeal of reform conservatism was that it was policy-minded. 
Um, but not everybody's policy minded. I mean, I, you know, we, we have filled 10 years of national affairs with a lot of policy ideas, including on all of those areas, healthcare, the environment, education, the rest of it. There are a lot of people on the right with a lot to say. A lot of them are, are here at AI, and you can you can look at that at that archive of national affairs, and you wouldn't find a shortage of ideas. I think changing the public's impression of what the right has to offer matters a lot on this front. It doesn't seem to be the case right now that voters are hungry for candidates who are very policy heavy. Mm-hmm. I think you can create a little bit of that openness by offering interesting, promising ideas that would actually speak to people's problems. But we can't fool ourselves about the nature of the electorate. The reason voters are offered what they're offered is that they seem to like it. And that's part of what would need to change, too. Yeah, again, on behalf of our generation, I don't know how representative I am either, but I was reading this quote-unquote foundational text of reform conservatism, the uh-huh. grand, grand New Party, uh, when I was an intern at AEI, yeah. I found it very appealing. That was 2015 or so. 2016 rolls around, and I thought, okay, these ideas might command the attention of the party, and they didn't. People went for the yeah. more brash populist. Well, you know, let me just say, th- these things take time. I, I think that it would be strange to talk about this effort in the past tense. Whether the term reform conservatism comes back to the fore or not, I don't know. It doesn't matter very much. But to, to try to move the party on a set of issues like this is going to take a generation. That's what it's taken in the past. The arguments that led to what became the Reagan agenda began in some ways in the late 1960s. You know, the case for welfare reform, Charles Murray started making that case in the early 80s, and it happened in the mid-90s. So these things do take time. I think it is important to remain committed to whatever you take to be the right way forward for the party and not think that the fact that it didn't work out in the last election means that it's not going to work out. I, yeah, I did not mean to write a premature obituary. What I, I guess what I'm mainly wondering about is, is this an agenda, which I do think is broadly a good thing and should be appealing to a lot of people? To enact the agenda, though, do we need to convince most of the electorate? Do we just need to convince the right politician and hope he, gets in, he or she gets into office? Yeah. Uh, you know, this is always a question for people involved in the policy world. It would be nice to convince a lot of the electorate, but I don't think we're equipped to do that, and I don't think that that would be easy to do. Don't underestimate this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do think it makes sense to speak to policymakers and the people around them at least. Um, that we are somewhat equipped to do. And I think that ultimately a real change would require some people in the political world to want to embody that kind of change. People aren't going to vote for me, right? They're not going to vote for national affairs. That's not how politics works. They're not going to vote for Ross Douthat and Ramesh Panuro. I would vote for them gladly, but... That's... The people in this room might vote. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They'd win AI big, you know, but, <laughs> but I don't think that's how this is going to work. There is a kind of food chain in the policy world where ideas have to start at the top of that and ultimately get digested in a way that, that by the end of it makes sense as a, an electoral agenda. Um, and so a lot of the work is trying to persuade people in the political system to think seriously about this and to ask themselves, what, it, what would it mean to put this before voters? You know, I don't know that we can give them that answer, but, I, but we can certainly help on the policy front. Looking ahead, we have Trump in 2020 running. Um, I won't say we. The Republicans have Trump running in 2020 as their candidate. Yeah. Let's yeah. say he loses. Do you see, how do you see populism working its way into the Republican politics after that? I, I think it's very hard to say, and I'll say more than that, but that's that's the only answer I'm truly confident in, right? If you think about our politics in the 21st century, so over the past 20 years, 
at no point would a prediction eight years forward have been correct. I don't think there was anybody in 2002 who would have predicted 2010 correctly. I don't think there was anybody in 2010 who would have predicted 2018. Anybody. So, you know, to say, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt is, uh, is an understatement. It does seem to me that the Trump administration, the Trump era, has not been very consequential on the policy front. It's not done a lot that will simply endure because it's become law. The only major legislative changes have basically been in tax policy. And we called them major because they took a lot of work in Congress, but they weren't major. They didn't change the character of the tax system. We haven't changed the character of the regulatory state. You know, some Obama regulations have been rolled back. Some Bush and Reagan era regulations have been brought back to life. But I don't think we've seen an actual change in the core structure of the administrative state. We haven't seen much happen that can endure the next Democratic president on any set of issues. Congress hasn't done much, and a president can always undo the prior president. So in that way, I I think you'd have to say that if the Trump era were to end next year, it will not have been very consequential. But politically, it's hard to imagine that it wouldn't be pretty consequential. I think the Republican Party has come to terms with the fact that it is not the party of the old Reagan agenda or coalition. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing, right? But at the very least, it means we now know that the old shibboleths are not as powerful as we thought they were. And there are a lot of open questions. What do we actually think about the role of government? What do we actually think about America's role in the world? How do we want to approach immigration? These are questions that I think elites in the party thought they had an answer to until the last few years. I think they were wrong in the sense that the public was was not with them for a very long time before the last few years. But it must be clearer to them now that that's the case. And so I think if the Republican Party finds itself in the minority after this election, it will be a time of really wrestling through basic questions and trying to work our way toward a, a functional agenda for the coming years. And that would be different. That would have made this pretty consequential. That would have broken the hold of the Reagan-era consensus in a way that that makes the years to come very consequential. All right, so the lid has blown off. We've got a lot of intellectual ferment now. We've got the libertarian wing on the one side saying, you know, go come back to our free market principles. But there's also the a new wing in, you know, the first things crowd, Josh Hawley in, in the Senate, A lot of people that might say, look, the ReformerCon agenda does not go nearly far enough. We have a tremendous problem with family breakdown, deaths of despair, and all these issues. And we need really bold, radical, conservative nationalist solutions here. So, I mean, what do you think of those? Well, I don't know. Maybe you can show me what those solutions are. I mean, I think there's different rhetoric. Uh, And Josh Hawley calls himself a ReformerCon. He was in the second issue of National Affairs 10 years ago, well before he was a, a politician. So I, I think there's a connection between these things. There, you know, the, the reform conservative effort was basically a social conservative movement to try to reemphasize some core social issues broadly understood over some of the traditional economic concerns that move the party and to find ways to connect those and build a coalition. I think what's changed is that among the people you described, there's less of an interest in building a coalition. There's more of an interest in sharpening differences, and there's value in sharpening differences. It makes sense to be clear about where we stand and where we don't, but there's also enormous value in building a coalition, and if the right is going to be effective in American life, it probably will still need to be a coalition of uh, market economics and social conservatism, 
And that means the basic work of holding this together will still need to happen, and the policy agenda will still need to reflect that. So I think a lot of the ferment that's going on is very constructive, but it will need to feed into a process of coalition building that right now isn't really happening. We've got time for one last question here. So we're currently in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, I guess now. Do you think this is the kind of event that could have a fundamental trans- transformative effect on the way people see the role of government? If this gets bad enough and people are saying, we need the government to step in, and then all of a sudden, limited government kind of goes out the window. It's very hard to say. I think we're still in a phase of this where we don't know what it ends up looking like. And it could cut in a lot of directions. It may be an event that leaves people much more distrusting of government with a deeper sense that government can't do what we ask of it in the way that certain, you know, that some forms of disaster response in the past have done or Katrina or other things. Mm -hmm. It may be a situation where we face a real crisis and it seems like the sense that we need government ends up being stronger. It seems likely, increasingly likely, that we'll go through some kind of economic downturn here. And that also can have uh, effects in both directions when it comes to the role of government. So I think a lot depends on how our government functions in this process. Uh, how bad it gets, which is just another way of saying it. I think it's too early to know what this looks like. What's the quote about the French Revolution? It's too soon to tell how it turned out. All right, Yuval, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. All right, thank you, Yuval, and thank you, all of you, for listening. As a reminder, please leave a review on iTunes and a comment and an email. Drop us a line. However you want to contact us, we always appreciate it. You can email us at banter at AEI.org. Max? Watch, read, listen. I heard you have a great book, and especially especially relevant since the uh, oil prices are cratering, apparently. Exactly, and I can tell you all about it because I just finished reading The Quest by Daniel Jurgen, one of the best books I've ever read. And people tell me I say that too often, but this Ew. but this one, I actually mean it. Post-war, don't waste your time with that. I lied. Terrible book. It's a great book. The Quest, fantastic book. It's technically the sequel to another book called The Prize, which won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction back in the 90s. The prequel follows the development of the U.S. oil industry and energy industry from essentially the founding until like the mid-20th century. The Quest, the sequel, the one I just read, covers the modern energy industry from 1991 to present. It goes into geopolitics of oil, renewable energy, climate change, all the different policy debates. Fantastic. It reads like a thriller. Tons going on in it. Extremely, extremely informative. Highly recommend it. It's called The Quest by Daniel Jurgen. Is it a propaganda exercise where we say, you know, the U.S. goes to war for oil all the time? No, no, no not, not at all. I, I, I get the sense that the writer is definitely not an ideologue on either side. He's Act- very pragmatic. Is he a he, journalist? No. I, I don't know what his background is. I know he's a VP or something at IHS Market, I think it is, a big okay. you know, research firm. Yeah, yeah. And I think he's got a PhD as well. Okay. I mean, incredible, incredible book, though. It goes into all the stuff, the policy debates now around, you know, nuclear energy versus solar versus why we can't get off fossil fuels, all this kind of stuff. Incredible. Do you feel equipped to opine on the Saudi price cut in oil? And why, first of all, why is it such a huge deal? I'm sure people much smarter than I have a great answer to this. But when I saw that oil prices are going to get cut by a ton, I thought, okay, that'll make gas prices cheaper. But it's tanking everything, it seems like. Well, well, the, the issue right now is that as far as I understand, in the fracking industry in the U.S., natural gas industry in the U.S., yeah. they've been struggling to make profits. And this year, there's a lot of places, there's a fear a lot of U.S. fracking places or natural gas companies are going to go bankrupt. Yeah. And this is dropping the price even more, making them less competitive to try to push, gain Saudi market share against U.S. market share. Well, I thought uh, it was and also Russia. Russia. Right? And also Russia. But, I mean, the U.S. too. I mean. But, yeah, it, it affects, but, I mean, it affects energy exporters a lot, but also, but for consumers, it can't be that terrible of a thing. I was yeah, for consumers, it's a, no, it's a, it's a good thing. But there's also, you know, if these places close, job loss and all the volatility and everything too. It's pro- it's problematic. And then, then I won't go, I won't get 
you know, I don't know enough to get too into it. But yeah, for consumers, it's a good thing. But for these oil exporting countries and oil exporting oil producing companies, they get yeah. Probably, and we also probably don't need a ton more volatility and uncertainty right now with the uh, COVID virus going yeah. around so much. My read this week, going off of what you've all said too, there's a great email I did every Friday from National Affairs. I don't, I can't tell you how to sign up for it, but if you go to National Affairs' website, they probably have a uh, a way to do it. Every Friday, they send out what they call an insight from the archives, where they send out two pieces from the public interest, which was the predecessor of National Affairs, run by Urban Crystal back in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. I think it ended in 2004. Very interesting essay from Urban Crystal this week on the estate tax, titled Taxes, Poverty, and Equality from the Fall of 1974 edition. And he, I've never thought about it this way. I don't know if I totally agree with it, but he says that we don't need an estate tax because that money's already been taxed, you know, standard conservative argument, don't need to double tax it. But what we could do is prohibit inheritances of above $1 million. So when you die, because the point of the estate tax, at least in degree, is you don't want to be able to pass on tremendous fortunes to people to the point where some people just never have to do anything ever, and they've got some tremendous fortune that they've done nothing to earn, and it just creates a bit of an oligarchy. What you could do, though, is have a system where no one can inherit more than a million dollars. So if I'm Bill Gates and I've got $10 billion to donate, I can only give a million of that to my son. I could give a million to each of my kids or so. But I would have to, the government wouldn't take it, I would have, but I would have to divvy up how I'm going to give the rest of that money away. So that way no one can inherit gobs and gobs of money, but we also can avoid that without having a punitive estate tax either. What do you think? Hmm. If it's just money, I mean, a lot of people inherit vast sums and assets and property and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it'd be tough. I don't know how he would say, let's say I want to pass on my business and if my business is exactly. at like $10 million, I don't think I should have to split it up. Maybe I might have the number on it. It sounds kind of like a wealth tax to me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not wild well, about that. It's not a tax though. It's not because it's not being taken by the government. It's just you can't, no one can come into this. So what's going to happen with the rest of the money? I mean, you are required by law to give it away to different people. So you give it to different charities, you give it to different trusts, maybe just spend more of it when you're alive. So the point is, you're not just going to pass a bank account with like a billion dollars in it to Paris Hilton. You're going to give it to UVA's endowment fund or to AEI, for example. I would say that Paris Hilton's on a tremendous amount for American <laughs> society, and every dollar was very much earned. You might be right. Yeah. Well, either way, I, this is but this is what you've always talked about. This is the type of interesting thinking that the public interest and national affairs uh, does, where they, you know, essays. I never would have thought of, thought about this before. I haven't given it a ton of thought yet. I don't know how it would work in practice, but if you enjoy reading about policy ideas in a intellectually stimulating way. Check out the public interest. Check out national affairs. You will be much wiser for it. In any event, if you find yourself with nothing to do over the coming weeks, I know a lot of offices and whatnot are going to be closed, I think. Tune into Banter. Listen to some episodes. And we hope everybody stays safe out there. Uh, Send us your feedback, your thoughts. And thank you all for tuning in. And wash your hands. Wash your hands. Mm